This morning, we're going to spend the lion's share of our time in Psalm 47. You can begin to make your way there, Psalm 47. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. But I want to start off in Matthew 21. So if you want to put a bookmark or something in Psalm 47 and then turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, we see that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's already told the disciples a number of different times, I've got to go to Jerusalem, I've got to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to die. And so he's been prepping them over and over and over again to understand uh, the significance of what he's about to do. And so he said it over and over again. But Matthew 21 rolls around, and what we see in this is as he approaches Jerusalem, everybody begins to see Jesus in a decidedly different way than he actually is. And he's going to ask the question at the end of this section of who is this? Let's start in verse 1 and then work our way down through. He says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Look what he says. He says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zidon, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That's from Zechariah 9 9. Recognize that, that Jesus didn't do this because Zechariah had said that years before. Zechariah wrote these things because Jesus was going to do this. This is how prophecy works. Verse 6 says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on, their, they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now look what happens when he begins to come into the city. It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. So this is the scene. Jesus comes in in the most humble, unassuming way possible. And people begin to hear about it. They begin to say, oh my goodness, here comes this Jesus guy, the one that healed my aunt. Oh my goodness, here comes this Jesus guy, the one that, that engages in teaching like nobody's ever heard before. Oh my goodness, here comes this guy. And so they take their robes, they take their outer garments, and they throw them on the ground so that he can ride over the top of them. And so then they run out and they say, where are some branches? And they begin to cut them down and they throw those down too so that Jesus can pass over the top of them. So they're worshiping and they're honoring. And look what he says in verse 9. He says, and the crowns went before him. And that, and that that were following him were shouting these things, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they're quoting out of Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they shout Hosanna, what they mean in that is, God, save us. Save us. So they see in Jesus some semblance of this character who has some ability to bring change in their life. And they're worshiping him. They imagine throwing your best coat. Imagine taking your outer garment and just casting it down on the ground so somebody could ride a horse out across the top of it. He passes, you're like, well, I guess I'll pick that back up and put it on. I mean, this is what's happening. Everybody's so incredibly excited about Jesus. They're caught up and they're captivated in this. They are worshiping him. Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, God, in the highest. But look at verse 10. It says, And when he entered, entered to Jerusalem, 
the whole city was stirred up asking one particular question. Who is this? See, to rightly worship Jesus, to rightly worship God, we have to understand who he is. Because a right understanding of God leads to a right worship of God. And that's how we find ourselves in Psalm 47. Psalm 47 sets up and depicts the king. And it it tells us how we respond to the king and what the king is doing. And so Psalm 47 is wonderfully set within this understanding we have of Jesus coming as a king. Look at how he opens this up in Psalm 47. He says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. What he's describing there is worship. Now, obviously, not worship in a predominantly white church, but what he's describing there is worship, because what do you see? You see Justin starts clapping, and then Dale starts clapping, and then Wade starts clapping, and they're all clapping at different times, and it's incredibly confusing. But what we see there is reckless abandon in worship. And so in some sense, this speaks to our worship, right? If you step in the vast majority of the churches where you would feel comfortable, you're going to describe the worship as calm and orderly. This is anything other than. This is clapping. This is shouting. Why? Because they're so caught up and captivated with who this king is that they can do none other. They cannot be restrained in their display of love and their response to this great king. So he says, clap your hands, all people. Everybody there, clap your hands. And so they erupt in clapping. He says, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Now why? Well, he gets in and begins to describe exactly who this king is. In verse 2, he says, for the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. And we stop there and we recognize we can't lightly engage in the worship of our God. Why? Because he is the most high God. Every conception of deity fails and bows down before him. And in order to correctly approach him, we do so in fear and trepidation. Why? Because he spoke the very world into existence. He spoke you into existence He upholds all things by the power of his word. God is sustaining the world even now. And because he's doing all these things, because he's so incredibly powerful, he is a God worthy of our worship. Look what he goes on to say. He appends to verse 2. He says he is a great king over all the earth. I mean, if you watch the news, if you read very widely, you recognize that the vast majority of people do not bow a knee to God. They live a life as if God doesn't matter, as if he's not reigning on his throne, as if they can do whatever they want for however long they want to do it with absolutely no interference by this God. But what the psalmist here tells us is God rules and reigns. He is a great king over all the earth. Look how he begins to describe all the various things God has done for them. He says, he has subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Well, from the Psalms' perspective in describing God and God's interrelationship with the nation of Israel, think about this. God takes a man named Abram, and he says, from you, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. And so he sends him out, and from him and from his seed, he raises up a multitude of people. And this people happens to find themselves enslaved in Egypt. 
They're slaves to the most powerful empire of their day. They're making bricks. They're doing all of the manual labor for them. And Moses comes and he says, look, you need to let them leave. You need to let them go. And what does Pharaoh say? Absolutely. Thank you. I don't know where you were with the shouting and clapping, but thank you. And so he says, absolutely no. He refuses. And so what does God do? He moves to systematically subdue not just Pharaoh, but the entire Egyptian people. And so he sends plague after plague after plague until the very end when the nation of Egypt, when the people of Egypt fund the people of God on their campaign and headed to the promised land. Do you recognize that? God completely and utterly subdued them. Nation after nation that stood up to Israel is subdued. God is sending and directing them into the promised land. When they come there, they find homes already built. They found cities already constructed. And God subdues the people there and gives the land over to the nation of Israel. Eventually, the people of Israel rebel and God sends them into captivity and exile. But even living in exile under the Babylonians and under the Persians, what does God do? He subdues both of those kingdoms to bring his people back into the land. He has subdued the people under us and the nations under our feet. Verse 4 remembers the goodness of their God in giving to them the promised land. He said, he chose for us our heritage, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Now, verse 5 begins to describe the movement of God, the action of God. He says, God comes up with a shout. And so this is kind of bringing back to the image that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6 of David marching before the Ark of the Covenant and dancing mightily before the Ark of the Covenant. It's God coming up with a shout. He is joyous and he calls his people to see him as such. He says he comes up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So this is the movement of God. This is the testimony of God. So what is our response to God? To sit and just kind of tacitly endorse that, oh yeah, you're good, you're great, you're amazing. I, I heartily concur. Can we, get a, can we get a second? Can we get a motion? All those in favor? Is he calling on us to vote? Is he calling on us to engage in this, to give some type of silent endorsement? No, look what he says. On the basis of all these things, verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises. You cannot calmly encounter God. You cannot passively encounter God. To encounter him is to become a worshiper. It's not to become some person who sits back and just quietly nods your head and sings with internally. It's to join with a whole chorus of people recognizing God for his goodness, recognizing God for his greatness, and joining, in there, joining there in the chorus and singing praises to our God. It says, sing praises to God, sing praises. And then he goes on again, he says, sing praise to our king, sing praises. And unless you believe that, man, this is just something that happens within the Old Testament. You know those Israelites, they were just accustomed to singing, and we just don't have to do that. Well, God spurs up in Ephesians 5 and verse 19, and he tells, and he tells us this same thing. To, to sing hymns and spiritual songs and psalms to one another. We are engaging one another when we sing. What happens when you see somebody whose, whose husband is a complete and utter uh, just, just, just jerk? And they sit beside you on Sunday and they're singing praises to our God. What happens when you know the person beside you has suffered tremendous loss the week before and they sit beside you, they stand beside you, and they sing praises to our God? What happens when they see you? 
They're encouraged. Why? Because they recognize in you and in our worship that our worship is not determined by our circumstances. Our worship flows from our understanding of who God is. So he comes to, do, he comes to us again, sing praises. Our praise of God is unassailable. Now, in our flesh, when we come into this room, there are any number of things competing for our affections, competing for our attention, our fear. Some of us have incredibly difficult things that we're going through in life. We have lost a loved one, lost our job. Our relationship with our spouse is characterized as anything other than lovely. You're lonely, you're depressed. And we have people that are encountering real and difficult things in their lives. I want you to hear me say this. Your worship of God does not depend upon how you feel. And when did you ever begin to think that God's not acutely aware of how you feel? He sees your sorrow. He sees your pain. He sees your anguish. And there's something so incredibly beautiful about worshiping God in the midst of that. Some of the most pointed times of worship in my life, I've been incredibly emotionally wrecked. Suffering loss of a family member, struggling emotionally, just incredibly overwhelmed. And the goodness and the sweetness of the worship in that moment, when God takes something broken, in the power of his Holy Spirit, he gives you a voice to cry out to him to worship him from that place. So again, the Psalms just cries out and says, sing praises to our God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. Why? For God is the king over all the earth. Regardless of whether or not your neighbor, your husband, your wife, your friend, your family member, or some pundit on television recognizes God in his sovereignty and his rule, he is king over all the earth. Nowhere on the earth, nowhere in the universe is a place that exists without the rule and the reign of God. And our command is therein to sing praises to him. Sing praise to him. Look at what he says in verse 8 and 9. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. So this is his picture of God, high and exalted, high and lifted up, ruling and reigning and seeing everything. His holy throne, perfect in justice, perfect in might and majesty. Look what he says here in verse 9. It says, The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Now, the only other place in this psalm that God has mentioned the peoples was back in verse 3. And what did he say there? He says, He subdued peoples under us. So what verse 9 gives us this beautiful picture of is of God gathering men and women from among the nations. God gathering people who were formerly opposed to him. God gathering people who were cast off and living out there. God gathering people who wanted nothing to do with him. God gathering people who were rebellious. God gathering people who thought he was ridiculous. God gathering people who were caught up in dismay. God gathering people whose lives were described as being characterized by being in unbelief. But he gathers them. The princes of the people, the strong men of the earth are gathered together. And what do they do? They worship him. God is gathering each one of us from our various stories. 
Ephesians 2, 1 says we are all dead in our sins and our trespasses, and God saved us. He didn't save you for him because you're a particularly good person. He saved you because you're a dead person, incapable of saving yourself. And he calls you and makes you lovely. He calls you and makes you a worshiper of him. And he gathered us from among the nations to sing his praises. He gathered us from amongst our families to glorify and to honor his name. Look how the Psalms ascends. He says, he is highly exalted. This great king who sits enthroned upon our praise, he says he is highly exalted. Well, what then does this have to do with Palm Sunday in Matthew 21? You see, in Matthew 21, Jesus goes through and he's receiving all of this praise and all of this honor. And if you and I were there that day and we saw those people and somebody turned to you and said, what must these people think of him? They say, oh, they love him. They're absolutely captivated. They're, they're, they're enthralled with who he is. Look at what they're shouting. They're shouting, save us. David and the, whoever comes in the, in the name of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he enters the city, they're asking the same question, who is this? You see, they were caught up and captivated in worshiping somebody they didn't understand, they didn't know. They didn't really know who Jesus was. They'd seen him do some things they couldn't, under, uh, couldn't understand, they couldn't explain. They'd heard him teach in some ways that they couldn't quite put their finger on, but something was different. They had a conception of Jesus that was flawed and faulty. How do we know this? Verse 11 of Matthew 21 says, And from the crowds, people responded and said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They saw Jesus as a phenomenal teacher, a motivator, somebody who could come and create a, a groundswell of movement and radically alter and change the way that people were engaging God. But they didn't see him as God. You see, Jesus isn't exalted and lifted up, lifted up because we have an emotional experience and connection with Jesus. Jesus isn't lifted up high and exalted because we tell everybody about him, or because we give money to a church, or we faithfully attend. He's not exalted because we are good people. He's exalted, Paul tells us, because he died. Jesus, speaking of his own death in John 12, 32, he said he had to be lifted up. Speaking of his death on the cross, he said, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and when he does so, he'll draw all men to himself. All of humanity is drawn to Jesus, not by the model of life that he lived, but by his death on the cross, his crucifixion. But look at what Paul says in Philippians 2. This king who is high and exalted, this king that we sing praises to. Starting in verse 6, he says, speaking of Jesus, he said, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't avail himself to all those things that were his by very nature, the fact that he is God. He didn't greedily hold on to them. He goes on, he says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And what does that mean? It means being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus, all-powerful. Jesus ever-present, Jesus all-knowing, 
allowed himself to be limited and constrained by a human body. He humbled himself. He took on flesh. Imagine having untold ability, the ability to bring anything into existence that you would desire to, to make anything happen that you would delight in not doing it. An incredible restraint of power, an incredible restraint of himself, to what end? Even to the point of death. And then Paul writes, he says, even death on a cross. See, Jesus wasn't just kind of uh, put to death in, 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 a, in a real, rather sanitary manner. It was the most devastating form of punishment available to them in that day. That he was nailed to a cross. Nails were driven through his wrists and through his ankles. That he was suspended upon high in a cross and he was left to hang there, struggling for each breath, this is how he died. And so Paul goes on and he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. The king is exalted. Sing praise to the king. The ki Therefore God has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we understand who God is, is we become worshipers. And when we understand what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ, we are made to be united with him through Jesus and his sacrifice. We are his worshipers. We are those who sing praises to him. We are those who are honored by him. And he bids all peoples to come and to worship at the foot of his cross. Amen? Let me pray for us as we enter into a time of taking the Lord's Supper as we reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus. Father God, I thank you that you have made us to be worshipers. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy. So God, I pray for your spirit to be stirring in our hearts that we would engage in glad worship of you that as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus and we look forward to his coming. You are good to us. We are undeserving, but we are made worthy by the blood of Jesus. Father, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to Jesus, to ask for, for the forgiveness of their sins that they would, in the sacrifice of Jesus, be forgiven their sins and be made whole as you call them into salvation. Father, we submit these things to you in his high name. Amen.